Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we're going to be talking about bridge roles. What are they and why do they matter to your newsroom? Bridge roles are the connective tissue in many larger organisations, helping departments work together typically around special projects. But they have undergone a transformation over the last five years, from an informal and self-appointed problem solver to a dedicated catalyst for digital transformation. We'll speak to Robin Kwong, who has held bridge roles at the Financial Times before his current position with the Wall Street Journal as the new format's editor. He now works at the intersection of newsletters, audiences and data. We'll dissect the skill set of a bridge role, its purpose in the newsroom and what you need to know about creating these positions, either as an opportunity for yourself or your company. That's all coming up, so don't go anywhere. Robin, welcome back to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thanks for jumping on the show. Thank you. It's great to be back. It's only been five, nearly six years since you were last on the show, Robin. Time certainly flies. One thing that has, of course, changed since you were last on is uh, we these days kick things off with a little known fact about you. One of your proudest story was an exclusive with a disgraced um, former president of Taiwan. Tell us how you got the scoop. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I had arrived in Taiwan as the Taiwan correspondent for the Financial Times um, at a time when this president had just stepped down. Uh, before I took the job, I had never set foot in Taiwan before. And so really my knowledge about Taiwan was kind of lacking. But uh, my journalist instinct told me to go find the most interesting person on the island of 23 million people and try to go interview him. There was a slight problem, which was that he was in prison, like physically in prison. Um, and so I had to sort of spend months sort of working with, uh, to trying to cajole and sort of persuade his office to try to uh, wrangle a visit, a prison visit, uh, to go in and to interview him uh, at a time when uh, there was a lot of attention on the guy, manage that. Uh, it was, uh, pretty scary to be like physically in a prison uh, trying to interview this person but managed to get the scoop and was very proud of that and still remember it to this day. What did you talk about? Funnily enough, I brought a really Western mindset uh, to his case. He was uh, being accused of corruption. Um, and uh, I brought a really Western mindset in the sense that, oh, his trial hasn't happened yet. You know, everybody should be presumed innocent until they're proven guilty. And so I just asked about the details of, you know, his time as a president and those charges and all this sort of stuff. Um, and uh, obviously, sort of they wanted to get him in front of international media to make it seem like he was innocent. Uh, but we ended up having a conversation and I came away with a sort of distinct feeling that this person might just be guilty. And so it proved with the subsequent trial, actually. And did you say that was your first story when you were setting foot in Taiwan? Is that what you said? It wasn't my literal first story just because it took a couple of months to actually make happen. Uh, but it was definitely my first major scoop um, while I was there. Robin started out as a political reporter for the South China Morning Post before specialising as a tech correspondent and data journalist for the Financial Times. Whilst at the FT, he saw an opportunity to pitch for a project management role as the publication developed more special projects like Robot Week, a week-long series about artificial intelligence in everyday life, and a data visualisation project on Brexit. It was these types of projects which required editorial to work more closely with audience, commercial and tech teams. People like Robin gravitated towards bridge roles, not because the organisation demanded it, but either out of necessity or their own career ambitions. 
um, the way that uh, myself and others who were in those roles kind of was able to do the bridging function was really down to us having personal networks and knowing people from across the company and sort of really relying on that. Um, and I think that as a result, a lot of the work that resulted from that was project-based or find a sponsorship to do something really interesting with new technology. Uh, but it was uh, mostly sort of individual base, the organization was still trying to figure out how to deal with all of these people that didn't really fit into the traditional sort of career paths and roles and what they should be doing with them. And that was really kind of where we were five, six years ago. Yeah, like a response to an internal need, be that a strategic focus or a, or a project they're running. But um, at that time, you were working with the Financial Times as the special projects editor. Um, apply that for a second, because you were saying there, it's sort of a little bit more casual, less defined, a little bit more ad hoc. How was that the case in that role? So in order to become special projects editor, I basically wrote a memo. Um, I wrote a pitch for that job uh, and for why I should be in that role. Obviously, I identified sort of problems that were really around project management and collaboration. Um, and so uh, what I had identified was that as the Financial Times was doing more and more digital projects, these projects really operated in a really different way from even the most ambitious large-scale print stories because they required working together with a developer, a designer, sometimes a data journalist, together alongside with traditional sort of editors and reporters. And then actually, if you wanted that story to have a big impact and to be read widely, you probably needed to work together with your social media marketing and potentially even commercial teams if you wanted sponsorships. The FT was and is blessed uh, with having really talented people and having the resources to be able to have sort of really great developers, really great designers, really great reporters. And so the issue wasn't really that, oh, you know, these projects require so many different skills and we don't have all of these skills. The problem was really that you have these people that have all of these different skills, but how would they actually work together? Um, and so I kind of really identified that gap and uh, the lack of that sort of project management uh, role or expertise being the reason why sometimes we have miscommunications, we have delays, we have people being annoyed with each other during the process or making the same mistakes over and over again in different projects. Uh, and so the pitch was pretty simple, which was that, you know, this isn't being solved because at the moment it wasn't anybody's job to solve it. Uh, so you should make it someone's job to solve it. And guess what? I want to do that job. I read from that, in that role, you were like a facilitator, bringing people together who may not otherwise, a translator of sorts when people are not speaking the same language, and I suppose a mediator as well to try and um, dissolve any tensions or confusions that might be in the room. Fair summary? Yeah, that's a that's a good summary. Uh, someone in charge of communication, someone in charge of translating sort of people with different jargons and, and different languages in a way. Um, uh, and then I guess also sort of another part of it is just really identifying the right set of resources and people to bring in to some of these projects because, you know, you might not need everybody for everything, uh, but, you know, knowing which people to bring in at the right time uh, is, a, is another part of it. Yeah. So specifically on that, that might be actually requesting resources to pull into a team or an effort, you mean? Yeah, and that's where actually some of the personal relationship and network part that I was speaking about really comes into play. Uh, because uh, so in the example of the Uber game that we made um, uh, at the FT, uh, the illustrator uh, and the UX designer for that actually 
did not sit within the news department. They were actually our, our illustrator and UX designer for our product team. So it was because of personal relationships. Initially, that was like, hey, I'm working on this cool project. Would you like to help? And would you like to get involved? Um, that was how they were initially, I guess, recruited into the project. And it was only subsequently as it gathered steam that we formally went to their boss and be like, hey, can we actually have, you know, a day of their time a week to work on this until it publishes? And yeah. And so uh, back then, definitely, it was really reliant on kind of like who you knew within the organization. These days, Robin works as the new formats editor of the Wall Street Journal, a dedicated role for deepening relationships, increasing return visits, and building loyalty with readers. He's in charge of three main teams, a newsletter team overseeing 21 titles, the audience voices team, which handles reader interaction, comment moderation, and audience engagement projects like live Q&As and Reddit AMAs, and finally the ranking team, made up mostly of data-savvy journalists to create evergreen stories and listicles. Bridge roles have really matured over the last five years, evolving from a responsive, problem-solving role to a proactive initiator of opportunities. Bridge roles are also a lot more product-focused now, demanding product management and product thinking skills. The reverse is also true though. A large part of product work is really about bridging skills, like managing various stakeholders, teams and resources. To me, what that says is that we've kind of gone from something that was really down to individual initiative, down to ad hoc sort of individual arrangements to something that is an organizational response, a structure change within the organization where there are now entire teams and potentially entire departments who have bridging as a large part of their function. Um, And that creates a bunch of different changes that go along with it. So kind of like when I pitched the special project, because I see this problem within the organization, like we as an organization can be doing things better if we solve this problem internally to creating these sort of bridging uh, teams or bridging roles uh, in response to an opportunity. So you can be proactive about it. Um, So I think sort of moving from problem to opportunity is another one. And the last thing that goes along with this maturity is that the way to be successful in a bridge role previously really because of the individual nature of it came down to your personal relationships, your social capital, your personal network within the organization. Now that it's more mature, it really comes down to having common goals, comes down to having common documentation, comes down to having common processes or set processes for how you communicate with each other uh, and how different teams communicate to each other. So some of that gets really baked into the structure of the organization and the way of working and the culture of the organization. Broadly speaking, you know, Um, There weren't that many journalists going into product roles five years ago as there are now. The News Product Alliance didn't exist five years ago, and it does now. So that's definitely something that I've noticed happening across the industry. The one really striking thing in that response is the proactiveness element. The fact that it's in the past, it was, you know, the onus was not really on you to come up with strategic solutions. It was responding to a problem. And now it's very much thinking about the priority goals of the organizations and what you can do to help deliver on that then set the framework in which to deliver on it does a specific example come to mind that we can talk about um of late within the within the journal there is bridging happening on both a strategic level uh, and so i often work together with our product manager for newsletters and alerts our data analysts uh and with other sort of newsroom and other stakeholders Uh, marketing, advertising, sales folks as well, to set overall broad goals for our newsletter portfolio as a whole. So, you know, newsletter as a product at the journal, we would like it to grow. We would like it to grow by this amount. uh, And let's all work together towards achieving that goal. Um, So helping to 
get everybody together, get everybody aligned, you know, get everybody agreed and get everybody coordinated in their actions across many different departments is a part of what I do in my role, obviously in collaboration with all these other people that I work really closely with. And so that's really kind of on the strategic level. On the more tactical level, uh, there are things that we can't do on our own when it comes to, for example, starting new newsletters, sunsetting newsletters, special editions of newsletters, technical support for newsletters. And so uh, my head of newsletters, our newsletter editor, and our newsletter producers will attend the newsletter product team stand-up meetings on a regular basis. Uh, and so there is sort of docs and data analytics and all that uh, processes built into place where, you know, we are all looking at the data. We're on a sort of day-to-day, week-to-week, granular, tactical, what do we do today level. Uh, we are working across across teams, across sort of disciplines, across departments as well. I wonder if it's not just top down, but it's also bottom up, Robin, in the sense that if you're speaking with your newsletter team and they're saying like this newsletter isn't performing or we're finding this really surprising insight with these newsletters, is that then your chance to observe that in those larger meetings you have with the directors and senior editors to say, listen, this is something we should be paying attention to? Yes, absolutely. So this uh, applies to both sort of I guess, positive and opportunities and problems. Like we noticed something really successful that we didn't expect. And we're like, oh, maybe we should do a few more of these. Uh, we noticed that something isn't landing. And so we're like, oh, we should maybe sort of shift away from doing this a little bit. That definitely happens um, because obviously the people who are going to be looking the most closely at the newsletter data and how newsletter performs are the people most involved in putting it together. There's often sort of insights that that sort of arise from that. Yeah. Any good examples? One really good example is what the data can't and can't tell us. Um, And so we work really closely with our data analysts. Um, Our reporters and editors often have really reasonable and good questions about, hey, really granular stuff. You know, hey, is it better if I do this in the subject line or do that in the subject line? Is it better if I have more sections, fewer sections, you know, does it make a difference if I do this? But the reality is that uh, there is really actually very, very limited engagement data available for newsletters. Um, And so this maybe goes a little bit uh, into often to the technical weeds, but um, Apple made a change called mail privacy protection about a year ago, uh, which has really messed up uh, open rates. It's hard to tell how many people actually has opened your newsletter. And there's a problem across the entire industry for anybody working in newsletters at the moment. And so uh, some of it is really just being really honest and open about to what extent can we make tactical decisions based on data and communicating that to the to the editors and the writers. And then also the subsequent discussion of, oh, well, you know, if you can't be really data driven and data based about some of these decisions, what do we fall back on? What do we do? And so the next bit is really to say, look, We have some hunches for what works. We think that consistency across the portfolio is important. And from sort of just working with loads of different newsletters, we're able to put together a set of best practices, a set of unified style guide. And so, you know, if you were to really drill down and quiz us on like, why exactly did you recommend us to use a bullet point instead of whatever, like we might not have the granular data to be able to say that this is definitely better than that. What this then led to is us realizing that we need to get data in a different way. And so we have started uh, working with, and that led us to reach out to our customer intelligence team to start surveying our newsletter readers. Not all of them, but we started doing some surveys of this newsletter's readers. Um, And, you know, that 
doesn't get us continuous real-time data as if open rates worked, you know, as analytics might have, but it does get us more colorful uh, data, more colorful sort of insights uh, and and sort of comments and feedback from our readers. uh, And we are able to sort of go off of that and use that as a basis for some of our decision making. Um, So that really wouldn't have emerged if we weren't having all these discussions with writers and editors about how to improve their newsletters and then realizing the limits of the data that we had and then the need to then reach out to other departments to find other ways to get new data. So we've talked about how bridge roles are facilitators, translators, mediators, all important parts of making collaborations happen. There's another trait in the mix, though. They're catalysts. Be that top-down, from larger meetings to understand strategic goals of the organisation and feeding that into their respective teams, or bottom-up, and surfacing useful revelations within their departments. Less clear is what this means for goals and deliverables. Yes, internally, Robin has to hit audience growth targets, but there is also something immaterial about bridge roles, in that a large part of what he has to do there is cultural, and not necessarily measured by hard data. I hope my boss's assessment of my performance uh, is not really just literally like, oh, you know, you had these numbers to hit, did you hit these numbers? I think it's a bit more holistic than that. Uh, I think it's also a function of my role to think more broadly and strategically about where we can go with some of these teams and where we can go with deepening relationships with our readers. And so uh, there's definitely a uh, goals-oriented, quantitative-oriented sort of element to what I need to accomplish and what I do in my role. But I think there is also another part which is a little bit more amorphous. Really interesting. So if I asked you um, to provide me the best example of, you know, the best breakthrough that you've had whilst at the Wall Street Journal, the best proof of concept for your role, what would you say? I would say that the fact that we are able to set up these processes and these this culture uh, of how we collaborate with product colleagues, with marketing colleagues, um, with uh, sponsorship colleagues, uh, in a way that is that preserves editorial integrity, that, you know, uh, meets all of our standards, that is not the old way of a Chinese wall where you just don't ever interact with or talk to each other. But it's also very clear that there are certain things which are squarely within the domain of editorial decision making, and some things that are really more in the domain of product-driven, tech-driven decisions or commercial decisions. And having the ability to have those conversations with my counterparts, and as a result of that, set up sort of workflows and processes and a culture and sort of the whole team uh, that has all of us driving towards the same goal. Um, This isn't really sort of visible necessarily from the outside, but if I were to just sort of look internally and look at what I do and, you know, at some day in the future, look back on like, oh, this was like really kind of cool and different and not something that is easy or happens naturally or often in news organizations. Like that is probably the thing that I would point to. So you see fewer silos around you? Yes and no. I think that there's a really important reason why silos exist and I think they will continue to exist in the future. Uh, So for example, I firmly believe that, you know, if our editorial writers of our newsletters shouldn't be deciding what they write based on commercial considerations. I mean, there's a basic tenant of sort of editorial independence. And so you need to silo them off, you know? Um, But I think that at the same time as having different silos, 
this is really cheesy, but it goes back to our topic of conversations. You've got all these silos, but you've just got more bridges between them. Like, it's just that those bridges aren't necessarily individual human beings anymore. Sometimes those bridges are like documentation, processes, um, cure tickets, uh, and, and workflow, and sort of uh, culture, I suppose. Uh, so that's kind of how I see it, sort of like still silos, but those silos are have more bridges between them. What do you wish you knew about bridge roles five years ago that you do now? Oh, I think the biggest thing is um, that in any organization, there are systemic forces at work that sort of encompass the entirety of the organization. And it's not really sustainable for individual human beings to try to solve those systemic problems just by you putting in more effort individually. Um, I think that, you know, there's a class of problems that we can all tackle individually and make do better job on and, and, and improve and, and make better in any organization. But then there is a second class of problem, which is down to how are we structured? How are we organized? Um, what are the processes and workflows that everybody follows? What are the customs? Uh, and those really need systemic problems, need systemic solutions, basically. Hmm. Let's kind of end things like by talking about the the implications here for the career ladder. Um, I'm quite interested in bridge roles and in terms of what's really the entry point uh, for a job in a in a bridge role capacity and the potential for it, the ceiling for it. Yeah. What could you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. That is one thing that has changed drastically in the last five, six years. Um, so and largely because of the rise of, of product and product organizations, product departments within news organizations. So if you are someone fairly early on in your career and you have your heart set on the work involved in doing a bridge role, uh, you like fostering collaboration, you like translating between sort of different disciplines and languages and you like sort of getting things going, you can now apply for junior product manager roles. And those uh, exist. You can join the News Product Alliance and product as a discipline has become more established. We brought we borrowed it from tech. It was more established there. The benefit of that is that it brings with it a whole career ladder. So you can go from junior product manager to product manager to senior product manager to product director to head of product to chief product officer. And that could be an entire career uh, for someone. And so that is definitely much clearer, much more structured and increasingly available uh, to young people uh, a, who want to do this sort of work in news organizations. At the same time, if you are someone who is a reporter, who is writing, who is in more traditional sort of uh, journalism roles, uh, there's still a lot of scope and opportunity for you to build up your portfolio, advance your career, get things done through applying collaboration skills, through applying some of those virtual skills, taking initiative. So I don't think that the move from five years ago to now is a sort of replacement. So it's not that, oh, you know, in five years ago, it was all down to individual effort and, you know, individual initiative. And now that has completely gone away. And now it's completely structured. I think it's in, a, in addition rather than a replacement. So you have these product organization, product roles, uh, and uh, but you still have a lot of scope for individuals uh, whether they're journalists, reporters, editors, video producers, whatever uh, role you are in, uh, to take the initiative to 
get to know the rest of the organization a bit more, to sort of build networks within your organization, uh, to collaborate across sort of departments, uh, and often some of the best and most surprising and, and most sort of standout work comes from uh, that cross-disciplinary sort of collaboration. What sort of skills do you need to be able to demonstrate in order to make that move into bridge roles or indeed, like you did, specialize or move sideways into uh, a bridge role? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think some of it is fairly similar to the basics of what you need to get into journalism, which I think is fundamentally a curiosity about what other people do, why they have their goals, why they do things in their way. Um, in order to translate, you kind of have to understand the different sort of uh, people, different disciplines. Um, but I think uh, communication skills definitely, uh, you know, you're there to facilitate and clear up communication partly. And if you can't communicate well, then you just sort of add to the confusion instead of reducing it. And that's not good. I think also it's hard to know what how to describe this, but I suppose it broadly falls under strategy. Uh, and and I don't mean in that, that in the capital S grand sort of newsroom strategy kind of way, but always having a really clear purpose and clear sense of expected outcome for what you do, whether that's down to a really small project or how you run an entire department. And because having that helps you prioritize, helps you do a lot of other things that are considered really core skills for product managers, which is prioritization, stakeholder management, you know, like goal setting, all of that sort of stuff really comes down to you having a clear sense of what is it you're doing, why you're doing it, and what do you expect to happen when you do this thing? Well, let me rephrase it this way. If you were to look at someone mentoring, what would, you know, this kind of profession, what would be the skills that you would look for? What would impress you that they would be able to demonstrate? I fairly firmly believe that there are opportunities to do this sort of work, kind of no matter what role you are in, even if you're not in a formal organization, like even if you're just in school or whatever, just sort of like, so I would definitely look for someone who has at least attempted to do something that involves different groups of people. This would be similar to someone applying for a writing role and be asking to see their clips. You know, like I would look for someone who has sort of trying to take the initiative to bring different people together. They're able to summarize and describe a project really succinctly. You know, I'm doing a job interview. You're coming to me with an example. Are you able to just really clearly and succinctly tell me what is this thing? Why did you do it? What was the the, the goals or, you know, what do you expect the outcome to be? Uh, so the clear communication skills involved in that, the clarity of thinking involved in that. And then I think also one last one is when did you have to actually mediate? Uh, because the nature of bringing different groups of people together is that sometimes they don't agree or get along with each other. Uh, so, you know, how would you deal with that situation? Uh, and having examples for those sorts of things, uh, I think would really, really help. Awesome. Great words of wisdom. And all of that feels like it should come naturally to journalists as well. You know, the clarity of thought, being able to summarize things, you know, diffuse certain scenarios. So Robin, thank you ever so much for your time today. This has been really, really illuminating. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hopefully it won't be another five years before we do this again. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. What stuck with me today is that as newsrooms accelerate in their digital transformation, they will require all sorts of new skill sets in the building they did not need before. And we're starting to see some very unorthodox job titles in newsrooms now. That will naturally form more silos, often for good reasons, but that will require more dedicated bridging figures to initiate collaboration. The most effective bridge roles are excellent communicators and play a much more important role in being proactive towards seizing opportunities. What did you learn today? 
and tell us what your newsroom is doing around bridge roles, you can DM or tweet me at jpdjournalism or my team at journalism.co.uk at journalism news. If you'd like to feature on the show, we've got a topic or story you want us to cover on the podcast next year, do get in touch. I'm on jacob at journalism.co.uk. And finally, if you like what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. That way you won't miss our next exciting episode. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.